All right, let's get to it. We're in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 30. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 and verses 22 through 38. I'll explain why we're splitting that. Exodus chapter 30, open your Bible, navigate on your device. The topic we find there, Moses is told to take a census and he is given the formula for making the anointing oil and the incense. The title of our message, Census and Incense Ability. Let's... I didn't know if I could pronounce it, so that's what I'm excited about. Let's pray. Father, I know I mention it a lot, but I just love the imagery of Jesus walking among the churches in Revelation. He portrayed the church as a lampstand, giving light to the world, and Jesus is there in the midst of them. So we want to have a sense, Lord, that you are here in a, in a special way. We know that you're omnipresent. We know that you indwell us as... Uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit, but something special happens, Lord, when the church gathers together as the temple itself. And I pray that each of us would receive a word from you, a touch from you, a healing from you, a help from you, whatever it is that we need, Lord, as we've sung this morning, that you would provide it, that you would at least reveal your great love, a love like no other. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said... Amen. I've had people tell me in the aftermath of an operation gone bad that their surgeon was a butcher. Maybe their surgeon was a barber. Up until the 19th century, barbers were generally referred to as barber surgeons. They were called upon to perform a wide variety of tasks. They treated and extracted teeth, branded slaves, created ritual tattoos, cut out gallstones and hangnails, set fractures, gave enemas... That would have been it for me. And lanced abscesses. Many patients would go to their local barber for semi-annual bloodletting. And so you might say that a barber wore many hats in the past. In certain cities across the country, public safety officers wear many hats. They are cross-trained to be police officers, firefighters, and EMTs all at the same time. I found out just yesterday that the city of Visalia once experimented with public safety officers. Uh, Didn't last very long, but they gave it a try. You know who else wore many hats? Moses. We've seen him as a noble in Egypt, a vigilante, a fugitive from justice, a shepherd, a deliverer of slaves, a river guide, a judge, a lawgiver, and a general contractor. In our verses today, his resume takes on two additional professions. In verses 11 through 16, the Lord appoints Moses as a census taker. In verses 22 through 38, the Lord appoints Moses as a perfumer. As we comment on Moses' job performance, we'll also note a correlation between his two new professions and things that we are called upon to consider as those who are in Christ. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, consider the accounting you will give. And number two, conduct yourself as an apothecary. Now, I should mention before we get into it why we're skipping verses 1 through 10 and verses 17 through 21. We're not really skipping them. They describe the altar of incense and the bronze laver, respectively, and we already looked at them when we discussed the seven articles that furnished the tabernacle. And so we're taking them out of order for our thematic purposes, but we've already looked at them. And so let's look at verses 11 through 16 and consider the accounting you will give. 
Numbers seem to be important to churches, especially the modern church. I found an article titled, How Healthy Is Your Church? These 18 numbers will tell you. The top five were the number of first-time guests, the percentage of returning guests, the percentage of guests who stick, number of first-time decisions for Christ, and number of baptisms. By the time I got to number 18, I realized they were trying to sell me church evaluation software. (laughs) That's what it was all about. You could evaluate the spirituality of your church by plugging in the numbers. Now, we tend to shy away from numbers, not just because we think them more mechanical than spiritual. We shy away from numbers because they can be downright dangerous. The census in Exodus is a case in point. God warned Moses that unless he took certain precautions, taking this census might result in him calling down a plague upon the people. And so verse 11 and 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number. Let's stop there for a minute. This initial census was commissioned by God. It was his idea. Best guess as to why was that the people would be preparing the military campaign to take the promised land. Men over 20 years of age were being identified as the army of Israel. They were being conscripted into service. Why so much census sensitivity? Well, if the number was huge, it could tend to foster overconfidence. If the number was small, there could be a foreboding of defeat before a sword was ever unsheathed. Either way, numbers can distort reliance on the Lord. And they're especially dangerous if they're large because they foster a sense of fleshly pride. An anecdote is told of Thomas Aquinas that upon entering the presence of Innocent II, before whom a large sum of money was spread out, the Pope observed, you see, Thomas, the church is no longer in that age in which she said, silver and gold have I none. True, he replied, and neither can she say, arise, get up and walk. And so he was pointing out the vast uh, difference between that which is spiritual and that which is natural, that which is numerical and that which is spiritual. Verse 11, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them. And there may be no plague among them when you number them. The wrong motive for numbering would bring judgment in the form of a plague. This is uh, something that follows censuses through the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but David, when he is king, takes a notable census. Uh, Even though he's warned not to, he wants to see how strong his army is, and it brings a terrible plague upon uh, his people. And so this is a very, very serious issue. Uh, The money acted as a ransom, we're told, guaranteeing protection from the plagues, paying it was an act of faith, in other words, recognizing that this was a serious matter not to be uh, taken lightly. Now, we don't think that certain church metrics will incite a measles outbreak, but trusting in the arm of the flesh rather than the Holy Spirit is its own terrible plague. In the New Testament, for example, the married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, found out about numbers and a plague. They lied about the size of their one-time property donation to the church, and one by one, God struck them dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. And so they gave the wrong number and uh, sought to uh, inflate their own importance in the church, holding some of that back, and God cursed them uh, with that plague. Verse 13, this is what everyone among 
uh, you who are numbered shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 garaz. That's helpful. The half shekel can be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So do you have change for a garah? Anybody have change for a garah? Probably not. I don't know about you, but foreign currency always confuses me. First of all, it all looks like monopoly money. And then like when we were in the Philippines, uh, the current exchange rate, one U.S. dollar, or 10 U.S. dollars rather, is over 500 pesos. And so when I go in and they charge you 7,000 pesos, it's like I can't, I can't do the computation. And so I never end up eating or drinking anything in the Philippines. I come back emaciated and dehydrated because I can't. I, I've got the money. I just don't know how to spend it. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, this atonement, it's not to cover sin. Blood was required for that. Now, this was a prescribed amount of money symbolizing that each individual is being counted without any regard to how rich or how poor they were. In other words, it's not about establishing might or power. It's a humble counting devoid of ulterior motives. And so uh, the paying of this as a ransom to make atonement, it all is to keep them humble and not think more of their numbers or less. And so the census was important but they weren't to be puffed up by it. And so verse 16, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and you shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. This initial collection of the half shekel would later in history be used to justify an annual collection of a temple tax. We see it for sure in the second temple period And some say that it was around in the first temple period. So I guess what I'm saying is God is not establishing this as an annual census in which a tax was paid to fund the temple. He, this was a, uh, seemed like a one-time situation, uh, one and off, Uh, but then later the rabbis and the Sanhedrin came along and they saw it as a precedent for having an annual temple tax. Moses was told to count the Israelites prior to them entering the promised land. In the New Testament, there are a few nods to numbers of saved individuals. For example, on the day of Pentecost, we're told that 3,000 were added to their number. Uh, That number included men, women, and kids. Later in Acts chapter 4, we're told there were about 5,000 believers. We don't know if that's a total number now or 5,000 more, uh, but it's clear that they were only counting men at that point. Uh, So uh, we're not sure the exact number of of believers by that time, but it's just another count. Someday there'll be a a final number, and then the Lord will return to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers. The number is referred to as the fullness of the Gentiles, which we take to be a reference to the last member of the church being saved prior to our removal. We're in the church age right now, God has a program that involves Israel. God's prophetic clock revolves around Israel. But when Israel rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior, God put that program on uh, halt for a time while he calls out a people for himself called the church. And so today, Jews and Gentiles are being saved. And when the last of those individuals is saved, that fullness of the Gentiles will have come in Resurrection and the rapture of the church will take place. And at some point, maybe immediately or soon after that, 
then the great tribulation will begin and God will begin dealing directly with Israel again in his end times program. And so we are living in this time of uh, the uh, Gentile church, uh, of, of Jews and Gentiles getting saved the same way and coming in, and we're looking forward to the fullness of that. Now, while the Lord adds to the church, we should look ahead to a different kind of counting, an accounting of our works to be given to the Lord when we see him face to face. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Then in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. And so this future judgment isn't regarding your salvation. It's not an appearance before the Lord to determine whether or not you've done enough to be saved. You're already saved by grace through faith. This is a judgment of your works in order to uh, give you rewards that will carry over into eternity. And rather than go into a long exhortation about this, just take to heart Paul's counsel when he said, make it your aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Don't you like summaries? Things that are quick and easy to understand. I mean, you could make a bunch of points about this and we have in the past, but the bottom line is, make it your aim to please the Lord. And if you do that, you'll have works of gold, silver, and precious stones in abundance when you see him face to face. Now, in verses 22 through 38, we want to conduct ourselves as apothecaries. Certain professions or hobbies have rather odd names. A philatelist is a person interested in and a, probably a collector of... This is participation time now. First service had this like that. Postage stamps. A spelunker is a person who explores. All right. An esculeri. How do you know that? How does anyone know that? That's the weirdest one I could find. It's a dishwasher in one of those fancy top chef restaurants where they have sous chefs and sauciers and sommeliers and ratatouille in the background. But anyway, the perfumer mentioned in our verses in some of your Bibles is called the apothecary. And I don't know why, but I like that. It gives it some kind of meat. Maybe it's because, can I say this? Perfume seems kind of effeminate. Is that all right? Can I? Is that something in today's politically correct society? Is the word effeminate still used? I don't think it is. Gene will correct me later. But So perfumer sounds a little effeminate, uh, but apothecary, take that to the apothecary, get that mixed up. Verse 22, <laughs> moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet smelling cinnamon, 250, in case you can't do the math. <laughs> I'd actually have a hard time with that. 250 shekels of sweet smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. 
and you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer, the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Anointing, or you might say pouring oil on a person, was both an ordinary and an official practice among the Israelites. There are several references to it in the Bible as an ordinary expected refreshment uh, to guests, for example, when they would visit, you would anoint them with oil. As an official practice, it was the rite of inauguration into the offices of prophets, priests, and kings. They would all have oil poured over their heads. Certain objects, as we'll see in a minute, were anointed with oil to signify they had been set apart for a particular religious purpose, and they were never for ordinary use. And so Moses receives the ingredients, and we suppose the formula for the anointing oil that was to be used in the tabernacle. And so verse 26, with it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. Quick story. In our first year here as a church, we hosted a New Year's Eve dinner, uh, and we had to rent another church's fellowship hall in order to do that. There's actually a few people here still at the church that might remember that, or if you, well, you were there, whether you remember it or not, <laughs> and uh, you might not remember it, and that's a whole other story. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, we decided we'd like to uh, share in communion that night. But we were a brand new church, didn't even have an office at that time, so we didn't own any communion trays. So we asked that church if we could borrow their communion trays and supplies, uh, and we were informed that we could not because only the elders in that church were allowed to touch the trays. No layman, and certainly not any outsider, could touch them. And so to that church, those trays were consecrated, they were holy and set apart for a particular use that could only be touched by certain individuals. Same church, some years later, we were in their sanctuary performing a wedding. I was officiating for a couple here in the church. Photographer came up to me and said, we've got a problem. Uh, they're taking pictures before the service, and on the stage, as is typical of many churches, there's an American flag, and there was a Christian flag, and I think maybe a denominational flag as well. Anyway, it was okay, except it's, you don't really want that in your wedding pictures too much. You know, be, when people go out to Hidden Valley Park, they don't usually bring flags with them. And, you know, you want something that, you know, you don't want people looking and saying, why are there flags in my wedding photos? And so I said, well, why don't you move them? And they said, well, the wedding coordinator said that only the elders of this church can rearrange the stage and touch the flags. And so I, I'd had about enough by then. Uh, <laughs> And so I decided on the basis of the fact that as a pastor, I am an elder, only albeit of a different church, I moved the flags on my own. Oh. <laughs> Needless to say, we've never used that facility again. Uh, and you can't say you're from Calvary Chapel. There was, then there was that time I put on a robe while we were rehearsing for a wedding at the Episcopal Church. Uh, they had some kind of robe hanging there and I put it on, goofing off. Nobody caught me. <laughs> We do have a picture of it upstairs. And later on, I found out a friend of mine saw it and he said, hey, uh, he used to be an Episcopal priest and now he's with Calvary Chapel. He said, hey, you don't know this, but that's a, a, a woman's robe. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we think that treating objects with anointing is not really a New Testament practice. 
the tabernacle and its priests and its paraphernalia, they were anointed, that's true. But today, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not our building or any of its furnishings. We are anointed. So verse 30, and you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. Now, I pointed out last time that this anointing involved pouring over their heads a rather large quantity of oil, enough to run through Aaron's beard and onto his beautiful garments. I joked about the paltry amount of oil that we use today when we anoint somebody. We usually just dab our finger in the, the cap of olive oil and just kind of touch them uh, a little bit. If you're going to cite the Old Testament for doing something, why not do it the way it was done in the Old Testament? Pour oil over people's heads. Uh, now, we'll ask permission if you'd like this. You know, and so far no one has said, yeah, go for it. But, but you know what I mean? There's a lot of things people say, oh, this is our, ba- our basis is in the Bible. We do it because the Bible says to do it. Well, then do it the way the Bible says to do it. Pour that oil. Bring, gosh, just, you know, 695 bottle of Bertolini, you know, that kind of thing. You want to be anointed? Here we go. Now, just as an aside, maybe it's because we don't live in a desert Bedouin community but I don't see anything really helpful about having oil poured over my head, into my beard, and onto my garden, uh, garments rather, when I'm at dinner. Hey, glad to have you. Let's have some refreshment. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, this is a holy anointing oil to be uh, mine throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. That, I, I can't help that phrase, man's flesh. It always reminds me of that scene in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, where the one orc says, today we'll eat man flesh. Here, it means something different. It just means anybody who's not a priest, anybody who's just ordinary. And they didn't eat each other. Verse 33, whoever compounds anything like it or puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So you couldn't go on Etsy or eBay and buy the oil as used in the tabernacle. It was exclusive. You know, you know those things, this is the one that's used at the tabernacle. Uh, you'd be in trouble. The apothecaries among the Israelites were not to duplicate and distribute this oil under penalty of banishment. Verse 34, and the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. I can't pronounce any of these words, so we're going to go right to verse 35. You shall make make of these an an incense, a compound according to the art of perfumer, salted, pure, holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. So the priests were charged with burning the correct incense in the way that was prescribed. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any of it for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. However, or whoever rather makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So it had the same disclaimer as with the oil, don't mess around with a copycat. Now, you've probably noticed we don't burn incense, we don't pour oil over your head upon arrival. I've already indicated that we, meaning our individual bodies and our collective body, we are the temple of God on the earth. With regard to anointing, there is a point of contact that we can make, we can make application. We first would take note that Jesus was anointed, not by oil, but by the Holy Spirit. 
In the Old Testament, a deliverer promised under the title of the Messiah, which translates to the anointed one. The nature of his anointing is spiritual, described in Isaiah 61.1, where it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. Uh, we know that that's about Jesus because Jesus applied that to himself. Uh, he spoke this word at a synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, and he indicated that this had come true and that he was on the earth as the anointed one. Uh, and it was a, a spiritual anointing that God had upon his life. Being in Christ, a believer has this anointing. 2 Corinthians 1.21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us. He is God. And then 1 John 2.27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And so both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John described a Christian as a person who is anointed in the same way that Jesus was. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit coming upon his life, guiding and directing his life, empowering his life. And so we as Christians, little Christs, or Christ-like, as being in Christ, share that same anointing. After Jesus left the earth, he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's in that sense that Christians are anointed. Nonetheless, we often refer to the anointing of the Holy Spirit as if it were an add-on that certain more spiritual Christians have and regular Christians don't. We even have a name for it that we're all familiar with. We call some people spirit-filled Christians. And we discriminate between regular Christians, nominal Christians, and spirit-filled Christians. Uh, sometimes we do it arrogantly. Sometimes we do it you know, uh, not arrogantly, but it's a term that's crept into our uh, nomenclature. I don't know what that even meant, but <laughs> sometimes, you know, I, I slip into college mode. I did go to college, and I, I'd like you to know it. But anyway, <laughs> spirit-filled. Comment, uh, commenting on that, noted Pentecostal scholar Gordon Fee. Now, note this guy's a Pentecostal. Gordon Fee, he says this, for the first Christians... It was not merely a matter of getting saved, forgiven, and prepared for heaven. It was above all else to receive the Spirit and to walk with power. They simply would not have understood our Pentecostal terminology, Spirit-filled Christian. That would be like saying a Scandinavian Swede. They simply did not think of Christian initiation as a two-stage process. For them to be Christian meant to have the Spirit, to be a Spirit person. To be a spiritual person, therefore, did not mean to be some kind of special Christian, a Christian elitist. For them to be spiritual meant to be a Christian, not over against a nominal or a carnal Christian, but over against a non-Christian, one who does not have the Spirit. Fee goes on to argue, nowhere does the New Testament say get saved and then be filled with the Spirit. To them, getting saved meant especially to be filled with the Spirit. That all believers in Christ are spirit-filled is the preposition of the New Testament writers. Thus, the imperative is keep on being full of the Holy Spirit. And so why do some believers seem spirit-filled while others do not? This seems to be in our experience. It's largely because the church in its subsequent history moved away from emphasizing the Spirit and His empowering. 
one final quote from Fee. The result was the unfortunate omission of this valid biblical dimension of Christian life from the life of most Christians and the subsequent history of the church. Now, we see this today. Most of the guys teaching God's word on the radio, especially the non-Calvary guys, I'm not saying that Calvary is the best way to go or anything like that, but most of the guys that have radio programs that we're familiar with that are not Calvary Chapel, that are solid Bible teachers, they are what we would call cessationists. And that simply means that they believe that certain gifts and ministries and empowerings of the Holy Spirit have ceased in the age in which we live and that the miraculous has largely ceased. Though they would admit that God can still do miracles, they would say he doesn't. And their argument is that now we have the Bible completed, we have the full canon of Scripture, so we don't need the gifts of the Spirit, certain supernatural gifts of the Spirit. We don't need this supernatural empowering. We don't need the miraculous. And this is the common teaching that people have been receiving for centuries, cessationists. We consider ourselves continuationists where we see that the Holy Spirit is still given. He's empowering us. He's gifted us. I don't see any teaching in Scripture where any of the supernatural gifts have ceased, those kinds of things. And so there's a big gap in terms of teaching. And so most people downplay the role of the Spirit in the Christian life. In a bit of sarcasm, some say that these cessationists believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. In other words, they have jettisoned the idea that we need the Spirit because now we have the Bible, and the Bible is all that we need. Now, what often happens is a person who is in a cessationist tradition comes either through study of God's Word or through their own circumstances to long for more empowering of the Spirit. And when they receive it by faith, it seems to them as if it's some kind of second blessing. That subsequent experience is valid, but it's not the norm in the New Testament. It's normal to understand the Spirit's empowering from day one. The Apostle Paul exhorted us to go on being filled with the Spirit. That assumes that you start filled with the Spirit, does it not? You can't go on being filled if you've never been filled to start with. And so he understood that the Spirit and the amazing changes that he accomplishes in your life from the beginning are something that should continue. And then in another place, Paul says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And this is the crux of the matter. He wrote to the Galatians, to the churches of Galatia, They started great, they got saved, they were spirit-filled, miraculous things were happening, they had power to live the Christian life, and then these other teachers came in, in their case they were Judaizers who were saying, you guys are maybe saved, but you'll only be fully saved if you start obeying the Jewish laws and get circumcised and these various different things. And they were gravitating towards that fleshly teaching and giving up on the life of the Spirit. And that's essentially what the modern church has done uh, in, in large measure. They have given up on the empowering of the Spirit and they are living uh, according to certain principles and precepts in the strength of their own flesh. And so don't talk your way out of being filled with the Spirit on account of your favorite Bible teacher telling you there's no such thing anymore or that it's simply a matter of reading your Bible more. Read your Bible more and discover the dynamic power available to you via the indwelling spirit. You can usually tell 
where an author or a commentator is coming from when they come to one of these sections of Scripture where it talks about supernatural gifts or the miraculous, they usually spend most of their time telling you why these things can't happen today instead of marveling at what God is able to do and did uh, with the first century church. And so that's enough about anointing. What about incense? Well, one clear parable with us would be the Apostle Paul's teaching that our very lives give off heavenly aromas. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other we are the aroma of life leading to life who is sufficient for these things. The imagery isn't from the temple incense, it's from Rome. If a commander won a complete victory over the enemy on foreign soil, if he killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers and gained new territory for the emperor, then that commander was entitled to what they called the Roman triumph. This was a processional that would include the commander riding in a golden chariot, surrounded by his officers. The parade would also include a display of the spoils of battle, as well as the captive enemy soldiers. Roman priests would be in the parade carrying burning incense to pay tribute to the victorious army. Jesus Christ, your commander, came to foreign soil and completely defeated the enemy. He, instead of killing 5,000, as we've said, he gave his life for more than 5,000 to be saved. Jesus claimed the spoils, lost souls who had been in bondage to sin and Satan. Now, those who were held captive in the Roman triumph uh, the, uh, they would see the incense that the priests burned as a savor of death because they were on their way to be killed, whereas the Roman citizen would see it as a savor of life and victory. And so that's the imagery that Paul is drawing from. Your testimony of Jesus and your sharing of the gospel diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Wherever you go with the fragrance of Jesus, some would receive the Lord and be saved, Others will reject the Lord and remain lost in their sins. To those who reject, the gospel is an aroma that should warn them of the second death, eternal separation from God, and conscious torment in hell. To those who receive the Lord, the gospel is an aroma that fills them with new life as it provides the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Among the many hats you wear, you are an apothecary who will one day give your accounting to the Lord. Stick to the original formula and be continuously spirit-filled. If that seems foreign to you, if, if you're you know, saying, hey, I don't, I don't know really anything about what that would mean, well, then listen to these words of Jesus. Jesus said this not of non-believers, but to believers. He said, this is how you should approach being filled with the Spirit. He said in Luke 11, beginning in verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The norm for the New Testament you're saved and spirit-filled. And then Paul says, go on being spirit-filled. Don't uh, trade the spirit for the arm of the flesh. And Jesus says, just keep asking and seeking and knocking and I will provide a continual filling 
my commandments, will have my enablement because you'll be filled with the Spirit. You'll be able to do His will and accomplish His work.